Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to Fanalytics University Class 6. We're calling this one Organizational Decision Making. Okay, so as a quick recap of where we've been, we start the class off by talking about sort of the nature of fandom, uh, give you guys a framework for thinking about how fandom is created, what it means to people, how it ends up being an important business asset. The last couple of classes have shifted to the core topic in all this, the topic of sports analytics with a focus on developing advanced statistics, and last class, looking at in-game decision-making. So conceivably, conceptually, we're now in a position where we can develop statistics, advanced metrics, measurements, pieces of data to characterize players. And we're also in a position where we have a framework, at least, for thinking about how to make decisions within games. Okay, this is all great. This is like the basic toolkit. But the reality is, how are these decisions actually made in organizations? So if you're coming in as a sports analyst, you are, you know, you almost think of the, uh, you almost think of the, the stereotype that you're in the basement office crunching away at the computer. And so let's say you're doing great work and you're doing, um, you're building great models. How do you actually get the general manager to take you seriously to decide that your, your evaluation is what's going to determine who they draft? How do you get the coach to consider your insights into how he should make decisions during the course of play? Okay, so to start today, I think this is the best example of pushback against analytics. Uh, so as usual, I'm joined by my favorite student in the class, Mr. Doug Battle. Ah, wow. That's high praise. That means a lot. It is. It is. Now, Doug, I've given you a quote from Sir Charles Barkley. Um, can you set up where that quote comes from and then read uh, read Charles' quote? Yeah. Sir right, Charles, Mr. Barkley's quote. Charles Barkley, who I met at a Zaxby's one time, by the way. Um, just a little side note, but he was on TNT doing his his typical you know, NBA show, and the Houston Rockets had beaten the Phoenix Suns on a Tuesday night when Charles Barkley ripped the Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey, um, in, in the NBA's advanced stats movement by extension. And for those of you that don't know, Daryl Morey is kind of the ringleader of the advanced stats movement in the NBA. Um, now, I wish I could do a good Charles Barkley impression. I can't. I'm just going to read this in my normal voice. <laughs> I've always believed, this is a quote, this is not me speaking, I've always believed analytics was crap. I never mentioned the Rockets as legitimate contenders because they're not. And listen, I wouldn't know Daryl Morey if he walked into this room right now. The NBA is about talent. All these guys who run these organizations, who talk about analytics, they have one thing in common. They're a bunch of guys who have never played the game, and they never got the girls in high school, and they just want to get in the game. End quote. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm coming at this as the analytics person, the analytics professor, and I'm, I'm going to tell you as a starting point, I think there's a lot of validity in terms of what Charles Barkley is saying. 
Uh, I'll make two observations about this, one specific and one general. So the, the specific one in terms of the NBA and really in terms of almost all of sports, is he wrong? So what determines a, what, what creates a successful NBA team? And do analytics help with that? So, Doug, you're a big NBA fan. Oh, yeah. So what, what determines who wins the NBA championship? What, what do you got to do to win an NBA championship in terms of putting together a roster? Yeah. I mean, he said the NBA is about talent, and I don't think anyone's going to argue that point. Um, it's about talent. Now, as far as how you bring together that talent, I think that's where analytics— oh, well, Okay, okay. Let's, hold up. Let's, let's go a little slow here. Yeah. So, but what kind of talent do you have to have? I mean, in in terms of how elite does the talent need to be? Yeah, it's got to be elite. I mean, you've got to have um, typically a or multiple superstars, and by that I mean top ten players. Okay, so what's a superstar? Yeah, like a top ten, top ten, top ten player in the league. Okay, so to win an NBA championship, you've got to end up with uh, two or three top ten players. Right? Is that is that fair? Typically, last year was. Uh, an anomaly, in my opinion, with with Kawhi Leonard leading the Raptors, but typically yes. Okay, um, and do analytics help with that, or is there something else? Um, do you need analytics to determine who is a superstar? Um, as far as determining who's already a superstar, I think most people can can just use the eye test and know. I mean, it doesn't take analytics to know that LeBron is an elite basketball player. Now, as far as forecasting who's going to be, and you look at the Golden State Warriors, a team that drafted Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, um, forecasting those those players' impacts certainly um, play, plays a role in knowing whether they're going to be a superstar or not. Okay, so conceivably, I'll, I'll just, you know, summarize what you're saying that in identifying that LeBron James and Anthony Davis and Kevin Durant mm-hmm. and Giannis that these are top 5 or top 10 NBA players we don't need any analytics for that uh, or at least we don't need any advanced analytics for that in terms of projecting guys from I don't know small smaller colleges or from high school there's potentially an angle where analytics, if an analyst can identify this diamond in the rough, that that would be some real value. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think there's any analytics. Maybe there's some things you can do in terms of predicting who has a lot of upside mm-hmm. models that predict essentially kind of high variance players. Mm-hmm. But in terms of somehow that there's some data that's going to let you look at Steph Curry when he's a freshman in college or a senior in high school and project them out. I don't know that that exists. Now, in contrast to this, and I think this is Charles point, anyone that saw Zion playing for Mm -hmm. a half or a quarter of basketball knew there was something special going on, right? Yeah, no, no doubt about Zion or even watching LeBron in high school. Um, I think it is the Giannis and the Kawhi Leonard, those guys that fall that, that can make a huge difference where, you know, there, it seems like there's at least people working to try to find methods to project, you know, those diamond and the rough players. Oh, and, and that is, you know, and, and we'll, we'll come back to that in, in a bit here. Uh, the, the second part of 
The second part of Barclay's quote is sort of a more of a general thing. And, and I think these general issues are important in sports or in any field that you go into. And I, I look at it in terms of what he's saying is, um, well, who makes the decisions and who does the analysis? Okay. And, you know, rely on any stereotype you want, but Charles is essentially calling the analyst nerds. Yeah. Right. Couldn't get the girls in high school. They're the uh, beanie-wearing, bow-tie-wearing guys with uh, glasses named uh, Poindexter who are now trying to get into the club. Now, they're, they're trying to sit at the cool person's table. Yeah, and, and this and, is their way in. It's their only way. And, yeah, and, you know, regardless of whether or not, regardless of if that's there's anything fair about that or not, you know, and, and I— and it might seem strange I'm saying if there's anything fair about that. Charles Barkley has a lifetime invested in basketball, a lifetime invested in knowing the game. Even if this, even though his study might not be systematic, he has, you know, it, it should be Dr. Barkley when we're talking about basketball. He's got a Ph.D. in basketball, and now he's got these guys from another discipline, statistics or wherever, trying to have an equal voice. So it's... It's in fact kind of reasonable that he might be a little, uh, a little reluctant to trust the judgment of these guys, these outsiders, these folks that are not from the academy of basketball. Okay, so the the, the core of our class today, kind of the the key message, is that humans and models, well, human decision makers human experts, and statistic versus statistical models, computer models, they tend to be fairly different things. And this is at the heart of, of what Dr. Barkley, I'm going to call him Dr. Barkley, in terms of what dark, Dr. Barkley's point is. that, And I think his judgment, and, and look, this was 2015. In fact, he may have updated, he may have changed his thinking. But at least at that time, his thinking was that the human experts were much stronger than the analytical models or the computer programs. Now, I actually, like I said, I have a lot of sympathy for this because I've, I've spent enough time in the in the world of decision support, whether it's sports or whether it's marketing, to realize that human beings and statistical models are very different things. Uh, and I'll, I'll sort of give away the punchline here. The appropriate way to do decisions that utilize analytics are to combine the human decision maker and the models. Now, there are some reasons why that may be a, a relatively tough sell and a difficult thing to implement, but I think that's where you have to get to it. Now, so if, if our starting point really is this idea that there's a difference between human experts and statistical models, and the question becomes, well, what is the fundamental difference? And I'll, I'll say this, I'll make it very simple. Humans are good at holistic judgments, okay? So in the first part of class, we talk some about, uh, and I think you may have even used the phrase, and if you didn't use it today, you've used it in the past, things like the eyeball test, right? Mm -hmm. Can you, as someone with a, ba a background in basketball, do you think you're able to go to a game, walk into a gym, and very quickly assess a player in terms of, you know, how good they're going to be. Typically, yeah. Um, you, you just have a feel for it from watching them just for a minute. 
I mean, any even high school game you can watch and have a feel, you know, if there's anyone on the court that has potential to play in college or um, even potential beyond that. Okay, and 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 it's it's an interesting choice of words. You have this feel that you're and and correct me, you know, slow me down as I sort of try and interpret yeah. what you're saying. That you take a look, you see a player, you can just based on the physical stature, you have a sense of the level of athleticism. By watching that player move during warm-ups, you get a sense of the level of coordination, sort of how slick they are. Maybe from taking a couple layups or jump shots in terms of the shoot-around, get a sense of how how skilled they are. And just from those visual visual elements, you're mentally able to kind of put this all together and say, that's a guy that's going to play at the next level. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that is that's kind of the at the heart of it. Where now you imagine someone that you know, like you said, you, we, we've talked some. For for those of you jumping in, Doug was a big man in high school basketball, uh, averaged upwards of eighteen points a game senior year. I'm making some of this up. I have no idea. I was going to say, we'll, we'll uh, stick with that. Uh, may or may okay. not be true. <laughs> 18, 18 and 12, averaged a double-double. So, but, you know, from that, and I'm not, this is this is not to de- denigrate your experience at all, but even from that limited, that limited amount of, you know, touching the game, being part of the game, you're probably able to, let's say during warmups watching a college basketball game, to pick out the guys that were rivals, top 10 prospects versus the guys that were fringe, top 100 prospects. And so it's, you know, imagine now you add decades of experience mm-hmm. playing, coaching, scouting, and you can imagine that people get very good very quickly at identifying kind of the big picture, the big picture talent. Again, and again, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial. Did you, does this seem fair? Yeah, there's no doubt um, that makes sense. And you see a lot of former players hired as general managers or, or hired into front office positions. And these are guys with little business experience. And so there's one side that may criticize those hirings um, for assuming a player's success on the court is going to equate to success in a management position. But like you're saying, these guys have a PhD in basketball. They know players better than anyone. They've played against them. They have a real feel for it. Okay. Now, and I got, that was a sort of a nice lead up to point number two. So here I am as the analyst guy praising human decision makers. Now, there is something that the models, the statistics are good at that people tend to well, the, the place where people tend to come up a little bit short. And that is, as human beings, we've all got our limitations. Now, in the, the world of psychology or really judgment and decision-making, folks will talk about the idea of cognitive biases. Mm. So human beings are very good at evaluating the whole. Where they may come up short is essentially they've got, they've got kind of holes in their decision-making, right? They've got, they've got blind spots, and so, yeah, you're, they're, they're great at sort of kind of these broad judgments of that guy's going to play at the next level. What statistical models are good at is being very specific and very honest, right? The data in some ways, 
in some ways, in a simple sense, the data is not going to lie. The statistical models are going to tell you the relationship between how tall a player is and how well you might expect them to score at the next level or, or rebound, right? But those statistical models tend to be, I don't know, you have, let's say, relatively little explanatory power, right? And, and this should make some sense, too. I, I think today should be a very intuitive discussion. If, let's switch to the, N, the NFL for a second. One of the things that happens in the, before the NFL draft every year is called the Combine. You're familiar with the Combine, Doug? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's great TV at this point. And so the the combine involve the combine involves physical tests. So they'll ask the players to do reps with I think 225 pounds on the bar. They'll ask them to run a 40 yard dash. They'll ask them to run a quickness drill. bunch bunch of things like that. Now here's a scenario. And 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 again, you know, sort of let's go through this step by step. Is it important for a defensive tackle to be strong? Yeah, absolutely. It's a no-brainer. Okay, is the number of reps they can that player can do with at 225 pounds is that a good indication of strength? Um not necessarily. Okay, Doug's overthinking it. <laughs> now, yeah, look, I, I think that's fair. You might want it, and I think where you're coming at this is you prefer a measure like squat or deadlift, right? Is that fair? Yeah, and just thinking about what are they actually, you know, as far as their performance on the field, are they having to do the equivalent of lift 225 pounds 27 times um, on a in okay. a given play, it, and it's not it, not and, really. And that's and that's kind of the the perfect, and that you're going exactly to the end to the end of this this example, right? So, if someone can do a lot of reps at 225 pounds, they are in general a very strong player. Is that going to then determine who is the best NFL defensive tackle? Can you predict how they're going to perform? That they're going to be an All Pro based on the number of the number of reps or how much they can bench press? And the answer is probably, and and this should this should make sense, may tell us something, but it's not going to tell us all that much. Okay, so we end up in this world where we've got the human decision maker very good at seeing the the whole. We've got the statistical models that are very good at specifics, um, but don't explain, let's say, a lot of what we actually observe in the world. So this this leads us to trying to figure out how we can combine the two, how we can use the statistical models to help individuals make decisions. Uh, the, the other thing I want to talk about in the middle of this is some examples of the cognitive biases that well, really, I mean, it's a decision makers suffer the from, but human beings suffer from these. Mm-hmm. So I've got a, a couple of I've got a couple of examples, and this is this is kind of an important point, right? Where because in a lot of ways, the I think the right way to think about being a sports analytics person is to help the decision maker overcome their cognitive biases. Okay, so the the first one I want to go over is something called the the sunk cost fallacy. So the idea of the sunk cost fallacy is that individuals commit, well, individuals commit the sunk cost fallacy when they continue a behavior or endeavor as a result of previously invested resources. And by resources, we mean things like time, money, or effort. Okay, so this is a little bit unfair. 
Can you think of an example of how the sunk cost fallacy might relate to sports decision making? Absolutely. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is when a team is invested in a player and they they want to hold on to that player and they want to give that player every chance. Like I think back to, I'm a New York Giants fan in, in the NFL, uh, Victor Cruz, undrafted free agent. The Giants had a number of wide receivers when Cruz was on the team that were not as good as Victor Cruz, um, but that were drafted and were being paid substantially more. Okay. And so when it came time to cut players, all the articles were about, you know, will Cruz make the team? And he was clearly one of the better players. Uh, but because of the sunk cost fallacy, there's a tendency to want to pick those guys that you're paying more because you've already paid for them and, and you want to get your money's worth. So there is, in fact, some academic research that was done in the context of the NBA that showed exactly what you're talking about. In in the academic work, they looked at how, uh, really with general managers, the focus was on general managers, and if general managers picked a player, did they tend to stick with that player longer than players that they did not select in the draft? Mm-hmm. And your insight, your insight is dead on that if, in but 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 even beyond, let's say the level of the organization to the level of the individual decision maker. So if I draft a guy in the first round, I really want that guy to succeed, don't I? Yeah, I mean, part of your legacy is contingent upon that. Part of my legacy it might even be my keeping my job, right? Yes, it, it, it's like that, you know. So investments in terms of if a coach wants a guy or a general manager drafts a guy, it may be relatively difficult to to give them up. Now, when you add to this the idea of things like the salary investments, you can imagine that sunk costs can really, you know, can really sway decision making. It's like, look, we've invested $18 million in this guy. How, how can we have this guy sitting on the bench? Mm-hmm. Now, this is, and again, this is where, you know, the thing I I want us to think about is, you know, you you come all the way back to your general general manager being Dr. Barkley, right? And Dr. Barkley drafted drafted someone and he just won't sit this kid down because he's, he's invested a draft pick and he's invested big money into this kid. So what is the role of the analytics person? You know, the analytics person is probably not going to be a position to come in and say, hey, you know, you need to get this guy off the court and put someone else in there. It's probably more along the lines of saying the data suggests that maybe you should make a change, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just presenting the data and um, I don't know. It seems like you would allow the decision maker to, to make the decision, but to just present them with the data that supports what you would do. Well, and this gets tricky, right? So it's like to give them the data that can potentially help them find their own cognitive biases. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's reality that no one wants to hear, hey, you walk in as this young 25-year-old analytic analyst from MIT to someone that's been around the sport for decades and decades and say, hey, you got to sit this guy down. That, that's never going to be the right path, mm-hmm. right? It, it's much more of, uh, you know, you you might have this blind spot. And again, you got to be really careful. And, and I got news for you. 
analysts that come from training and things like engineering or statistics may not have these kind of social skills, but absolutely critical in terms of, hey, how about a second look at this player or making, you know, making making some kind of making some kind of change? Uh, another one I want to talk about a little bit today is something called the availability bias. Okay, the availability bias is defined as the the tendency to think that examples of things that come in, come readily to mind are more representative than is actually the case. So the availability bias. This is something that I think is really common in sports. Really common. Because I think it's something I hear every time there is a... Whenever whenever there's a draft being televised, the place where I think it comes up is they're, they're looking at a prospect from a school and immediately, immediately, what do they start to do? How do they start to... Explain who this kid is. Often they'll compare them to former players from that school. To former players from that school. Now, I actually like player comparisons when I when I sort of think more deeply about what's going on. And and so you, you think about any player or any sport, and we, we talked about advanced analytics and the idea of kind of sum guys up by single number or just a few numbers. In the NBA, let's say you might use something like a like an efficiency measure, right? Uh, what's mm-hmm. the what's the wanted Play, ESPN? Player, player efficiency rating. Player efficiency rating. Now, a player efficiency rating is going to give you a single number that's going to let you compare Seth Curry to LeBron James, but that kind of misses the point, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that, so players, you know, advanced statistics might say, well. They might give you a sense of just how valuable a player is in terms of overall contribution to a team. But what you're going to end up lacking is any sense of, let's say, the nuances or the complexity of the sports. And this, again, brings us right back to this notion of people with PhDs in basketball or football, whereas a comparison says, okay, this is a quick wide receiver that has an ability to get open, catches everything, but the receptions are never for more than about 12 yards, right? Versus Uh if I can do a comparison to a guy like Randy Moss, and then suddenly I I understand that this guy's impact on the game is going to be that he can get open, he can leap over defenders, and he can, you know, move the ball downfield 30, 40 yards at at a time. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of being much more efficient in terms of, in terms of the information. Okay, so Doug, to end this class, I want to tell you a little bit and give you some examples of the work that we produced in a project that we did with the local WNBA team, NBA team, the Atlanta Dream. Uh, and this was this was work we did, God, I think about five, six years ago. So we had the opportunity uh, over at Emory, the Emory Marketing Analytics Center. We did a project with the Atlanta Dream where we brought together uh, three women that played on the Emory women's basketball team, myself and another professor, uh, former professor, mm-hmm. Manish Tripathi, and we got involved in doing analytics for the WNBA's draft. So really kind of a kind of a an interesting an yeah. interesting project and and there's a lot of um whenever you do these projects 
you learn a lot about the specifics of an industry. One of the things that we quickly learned about was, boy, there was a, you know, even though the world of data and sports data was exploding in terms of women's basketball, there was still, at least at that point, five, six years ago, relatively limited data available. Um, so what I've put together from that experience, and, and look, it was it was interesting, right? So you're pulling about, well, so you're pulling a bunch of data on collegiate performance. Now, you might, you can already, as I have this conversation, you can very quickly go to sort of flaws or potential problems in, in any in any part of these things, right? So as I say, you're pulling collegiate data. Well, and I'll, I'll ask you, so, so Doug, what do you think the benefit of collegiate data is for the WNBA versus the NBA? I would imagine that there's less foreign players in the WNBA, um, and so there's less... The NBA at this point, with between the G League and uh, you know different multiple Euro leagues in college, it's very difficult to weigh those and, and weigh the difficulty of play and the competition for each player. At least with women's, um, with almost all the players coming from directly from college, they're all playing the same level. Although the competition varies from league to league as well, conference to conference. Yeah, you're. Your intuition is always great on this stuff. And so there's a bunch in terms of what you're saying. So so first off, there are a a few foreign players. uh, And, you know, you're dead on that for the foreign players, then suddenly, you know, we don't have any, we don't have Mm -hmm. any relevant data. You know, you imagine that some young lady is playing in a professional league in in Sweden. You know, are you going to be able to get data? Well, who, who knows? And is the data going to be accurate? Well, it's um, like even if you have the data, how do you weigh Slovenian competition versus playing Oklahoma and Yukon? Um, it, it just seems difficult to compare the two. Well, and, and, and you're dead on again. And even, um, you know, how do you compare conferences in, mm-hmm. the, in the U.S.? Is the ACC the, the pre, you know, in, in men's basketball or uh you know is the ACC the premier conference for men's and women's basketball um you know uh possibly so it's um it, it is it is tough now the one advantage that you have with women's basketball with women's basketball statistics is that basically they have to play four years so while for men you know they can sort of jump in and jump out and the draft position is almost more determined by their performance in high school and AAU tournaments right. than by you know a few games at Kentucky or Duke. You've got a longer a longer track track record, uh, but you can imagine that. And even this this conversation about strength of schedule, really, and sort of level of competition, is a is an important one, and it's really a good one. Because you quickly realize when you're doing this kind of analysis just how limited the data is. Even if you've got decades of data, how many prospects are there a year for WNBA rosters? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, it's probably, you know, I, I think they were doing three three rounds of drafts when we did this. I don't know if they still do three rounds of draft, but you're talking about drafting, you know, 30 to 36 players. Um, there are only, well, I think, ten or twelve teams in in the league. So it's there's there's a relatively limited amount of information on players that actually get drafted 
and players that actually tend to have meaningful data at the professional level. It's just a small, it's a small data set. Okay, but so what we were engaged in was just trying to get as much as much value as we could. And, and look, this was not our first rodeo in terms of this stuff. So really, we're going at it in terms of trying to play the decision support role rather than say, hey, you need to pick this player. So what we were doing is building models that use college data to predict rookie level results. Now, I, I can almost imagine that you're almost ready to that you're ready to jump out of the seat and say, well, what about this variable or what about that variable? <laughs> you should feel free to do some of that. I want to make a couple of points about what you get with these models. So I'll tell you that so a couple of models and a couple of results. These are online at the website at www.fanalytics uh, with Mike Lewis. So if you want to take a look at the results. So the first one was a model that predicted rookie rebounds. So what we did, and this is the simplest one, is rookie rebounds in the WNBA as a function of rebounds per game uh, senior year. And the equation that we developed was rookie rebounds can be forecasted as 0.74 plus 0.34 times the senior year rebounds per game. Okay. So, again, you know, as we went into this project, one of the things I was always kind of concerned about is how does uh, statistical analysis translate to the podcast format? And as I read an equation, I tend to get very worried about that. So translating that to English, it's basically saying that there's this mathematical relationship. And if they average 10 rebounds per, per game as a as a collegiate senior, then you would multiply that 10 by 0.34 and then add 0.74 to it. Um, so okay. in that case, it'd be 3.4 plus 0.74. So that's uh, what, four point, so about 4.1 rebounds a game um, for, for someone that rebounded at that level as a senior. Okay. Okay. So before I get to the point I really want to make, Tell me what's terrible about what I've just done, Doug. What have I left out? Um, we don't know who they were playing in uh, in college. Okay. We don't know if these were they were rebounding against elite schools like Connecticut right. and Tennessee, or if they were playing in the in the MAC or the Mountain West. Fair. Right. Or I mean, even a different division of basketball. Yeah, Division Two, NAIA. Exactly. Okay, what else? Um, level of competition. Yeah, level of competition. We don't know how much they were playing, how many games or how many minutes per game. Yeah, we don't We don't know. Maybe they were, look, it's a good point. In women's college basketball and a lot of elite men's basketball, there's different talent levels on a team. So if you are at Connecticut, probably every player on that roster was a top 10 high school player. And so if you're getting fewer minutes in the, in the, at the college level, that doesn't necessarily mean that your talent level isn't going to be there when, you, when you're playing, you know, when you're playing uh, at the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we don't know if these are offensive or defensive rebounds or, I mean, the, it's, okay. it's fairly well, vague. It, 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, limited. And, you know, the other things that we don't have in here, you know, we don't have any information about the height of the player. You know, maybe it's possible to rebound effectively in at the collegiate level when you're six foot one. Maybe that really drops off. On, you know, maybe you need to be six foot four, six foot five at the at the professional level. Um, interestingly, we were never able to acquire any information on uh, the weight of the players, right? And so, oh. if being more solidly built equates to more rebounds, that's also something lacking in the model. Yeah, that's that's interesting. They don't they don't put out that information at all for women's basketball. We never saw it. I mean, you know, maybe the and look, and we were working with the team, and so if the team had information via some sort of combine measurements, they chose not to share that share it, that with us. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Okay, and and so the the point, and this is this kind of goes back to our earlier discuss. This goes back to our earlier discussion, is that look. The model we have is in some ways great. It tells you the relationship between the observed data at college level and in general, the average results at the professional level. But it ends up being really incomplete, right? So we don't have player height in here. We don't have level of competition. You know, we're, we're missing out on a lot of things that the human decision maker is automatically going to include in their evaluation, Okay, now the statistical punchline for this is so, as the, the more stats-oriented folks might be interested in is what is the R-square of this model? Okay, R-square is a measure that tells us how much of the variation in the data is explained by our model. So in other words, in terms of how much of what happens in the world is exp- – in and in this case, our world is rebounds, rookie year in the WNBA – is explained by our simple model of rebound senior year. Okay, the R-square for our result is 0.21. Okay, so a lot of times when you're teaching college students, they will have had a stats class, or often they'll have had a high school stats class, and they tell you they haven't seen stats in five years by the time they get to you. But if they have any memory of stats, they will remember the R-squared. So the R-squared, as I was saying, tells you how much of the world, the environment, the model explains. And so often people will say, oh, a good R-square is 0.6 or 0.7. Okay. No such thing is really a good R-square. The R-square is just telling you what's just telling you what your model does. I mean, when we think about what we're trying to do here, trying to predict rebounds at college, sorry, trying to predict rebounds in the pros versus rebounds at college. You can imagine there's a certain logic to that, right? Better rebounders in college are going to rebound more in the pros. But as per our conversation, we're leaving a lot of stuff out. You know, we're, we're leaving out level of competition. We're leaving out uh, how many minutes you play. We're leaving out the physical dimensions of the player. And so it's not surprising that you're not explaining a lot of the world. Okay. Now, this might be an unfortunate path, talking about regression results via the podcast, but it brings us full circle to our conversation, okay? So the model is very honest. It's telling us exactly the pattern in the data, but that R squared of the model is relatively low, and that's consistent with the very quick off-the-cuff criticism of the model in terms of what's left out. And so it's a nice kind of centerpiece for this discussion of the human decision makers decision makers 
very good at understanding the whole, right? Mm-hmm. If you were a college scout or a WNBA scout watching people rebound all year and watching a lot of tape, I suspect that you could have a pretty good sense of who's going to translate to the next level, right? Yeah, absolutely. Value, so, so go so go on. I was going to say, so essentially you're telling me that the work you did for the WNBA wasn't that valuable. I think that's a real harsh way to say it, but I think it's actually a good way to kind of to kind of push the analyst because it it really reveals that it reveals the the true nature of analytics as truly about decision support. So you can go out there as the as the scout, watch a lot of watch a lot of folks play, watch a lot of tape have a pretty good sense of where the of who's going to translate to the next level. What the models are really good at is essentially to kind of check your work so mm-hmm. that you're able to get a sense of um, to get to get a sense of, you know, where your blind spots might might be. Um, I got one other I got one other model I'll, I'll tell you about real quickly here. And so a second model we did was rookie points per game. And that was, again, a linear regression model. Our explanatory variables were field goals made senior year, field goals made junior year, field goals made sophomore year, and field goals made freshman year. Okay? So it might seem like a strange thing that I was doing, but I I tested a lot of different variables in all this. Um, So rather than use points per game um, at the college level, I was actually using field goals made to predict points per game, right? Hmm. Okay, so with that structure, and to keep it keep it real simple, basically I'm saying I'm going to predict rookie year scoring per game based on how many shots you make senior year, junior year, sophomore year, freshman year. Um, well, what do you think is going to come out of something like that? Well, how, how are you weighing weighing each year? They weighed equally. Okay, so in some ways, that's what the model is going to tell us. What the model is going to tell us is how important each of those years are. Okay. Okay. So, as a as a basketball expert, and you can you look, and there, there's all sorts of technical objections you can imagine people making to this. Like uh, I, I can imagine people say, "Well, the the problem is all those numbers are pretty highly correlated in terms of." In terms of, well, someone that scores a lot senior year is probably going to score a lot junior year, going to score a lot sophomore year. So it's hard to truly identify the effects. So that being said, and again, sort of not the right format to start going into some of these technical issues and, and fixes for it. I can tell you that the interesting thing for us looking at this was that the field goals made senior year was much more predictive than the field goals made in the junior year, sophomore year, or freshman year. Okay? Yeah. Okay. okay. And so now, rather than, let's say, just give you that equation, what if I come to you as, and again, you're my general manager here, and I'm going to tell you, hey, look, we've run the data, 
And it appears that the best indicator of how successful a player is going to be in the in the WNBA at the professional level is how they did in the senior year. To some extent, the model, the data is telling us that you know you don't really want to look at the full four-year career. You want to look at the most recent data point. Mm-hmm. Now, as a decision maker, is that potentially more... I don't know. Interesting to you, or is that obvious? Um, is that something you is that something you might push back on? Well, I think the pushback would be, and people did this with Joe Burrow in the NFL, um, is that it's a smaller sample size when you're just looking at one year. But at the same time, you know, the the opposite argument is that that is the player you have now. I also think about Frank Kaminsky. Um, when he was coming into the NBA, a guy that wasn't much of a contributor earlier in his college years and was best player in the country as a senior. Uh, that's the player that he is now, and and that's who he should be viewed as in, in the draft. And when you're comparing him against other players, not some freshman or sophomore version of himself. Um, so I, I understand both sides to it. It's uh, it's just an interesting, interesting discussion to have. And I think that's perfect. That's a that's a that's a great great set of examples. In fact, to throw in there, like Frank Kaminsky from Bennett Academy in Lyle, Illinois, that you instinctively and talk about let's say availability bias, right? <laughs> right, right. In, instinctively, you come up with some examples, both pro and con. All I'm really trying to do as the analyst is say, this is what the data says, yeah. right? And there are always going to be the guys that are the late bloomers. And so then you look at the most recent, you know what I'm saying? So there's, there's always going to be folks that you can find on, that you can put examples that you can put on both sides of this. But that's really the anecdotal data. What we're really getting at here when we take it to the information, to the, to the entire database, is what happens in general. And so if you're the general manager and let's say, again, you got this PhD in basketball and you love this player that has actually had a bad season, had a bad senior year, but you love the intangibles and the athleticism and all these, all these variables, I'm not going to be the one to say, hey, the model says don't do it. I'm just going to put the model out there to say, hey, why don't we, uh, you know, just as a double check, maybe you should, you know, consider the fact that maybe this player has peaked or or leveled mm-hmm. off. Yeah. Hey, one more argument that I can think of that that, that last point sparked in my head was uh, regression to the mean for a player. Maybe they go through a shooting slump as a senior. Um, and I think the argument for that general manager who was already in love with that player is that they're going to, it's going to even out over time. They're going to regress to the mean and, and be that player they were those first three years. Absolutely. And that's, um, in some ways, what you end up doing is you're, you're kind of looking for these anecdotal pieces of information of player A or player B. And then you're also reaching for, well, how about this scenario or how about that scenario? And I think that's that. This this highlights the true nature of the true nature of decision making that at the end of the day there's a bunch of inputs to it right the the deep experience that the the expert the general manager has um, the any type of modeling or analytics that may get them to rethink or potentially find some of their biases 
And then the the next level of analysis is then trying to say, hey, well, why did this person do poorly senior year? So in some ways, what's kind of great about this combined human and analytics approach to decision making is it starts to put some real structure and some real data into the, the process of making the right decisions. Okay, everyone, hope you enjoyed class six, organizational decision making. Obviously, there's a lot more, and you guys should probably pick this up. There's a lot more, a lot more depth that we can go into each and every one of these topics. Um, you know, we're really trying to get you the high level, kind of 30,000 foot overview of the topic. What we're going to go next class, class seven, is we're going to come back to the marketing and the fan side and all of this. And so, as a real quick recap, right, we started out talking about the nature of fandom. Then we went into the analytics of how you build great teams, how you, and in today's class, thinking about how you use analytics to increase or improve decision making. The end result of having a winning team is a team that fans have real relationships with. Fan loyalty is the ultimate outcome. So in the next class, we're going to swing back and we're going to address the topic of brand equity. Now, because we're in the world of sports, we're going to call this fan equity. So the value of fan relationships, and we'll we'll actually pull some uh, we'll pull some data from probably. I, I think Doug, which league do you want to pull data from? Student request. I'll go uh, NBA. Okay, so we will pull data from the NBA from the most recent fan fan base analytics project that I did. Uh, in terms of homework, I will ask you guys to think, and, and again, here's sort of the, there, there's one twist to this. So when you think about a league like the NBA, or, you know, if you want to switch over, we'll talk about the NBA, but if you want to talk about the, if you want to think about the NFL or MLB, that's fine. So who are the iconic teams in those leagues? Okay, so you notice I didn't say who are the best teams in those leagues. I chose my word very carefully. So who are the most iconic teams? So what we'll talk about next time is an approach for actually measuring brand equity or fan equity in the world of sports. So in terms of preparation, just think about you know, think about the structure of these leagues and who the, the key, the most important brands are. Uh, so until next time, stay classy, uh, Atlanta, San Diego, et cetera, et cetera.